The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University, Chicago, is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for spring 2024 include the annual Newman Lecture, given by political scientist Jason Blakely, who will discuss his conversion experience, a celebration of the great Catholic jazz pianist Mary Lou Williams in a series of events featuring Deanna Witkowski, and the annual Cardinal Bernadine Common Cause Lecture, featuring Cardinal Christophe Pierre, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu slash ccih. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's good to be with you, Ashley. Um, we're recording this ahead of time because if you're listening to this right now, we have hopefully wrapped up a great week in the Midwest uh, seeing a lot of you. Yes, and I'm freezing still. Yes, it does, <laughs> does look cold. So we've got a special episode this week. No SOTs, no signs of times, no as one friend speaks to another. Uh, but we have a great, long, thorough conversation with Amy Jo Levine. Yeah, we really wanted to give some space to this. AJ, as she goes by, she is a Jewish New Testament scholar and the author of many books, including the one that we really dig into in this conversation titled The Misunderstood Jew, The Church, and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus. So we get into a lot. She grew up in Massachusetts, a, a, a Jewish girl in a majority Portuguese Catholic town. So that was her introduction to Christianity. And so we ask her, you know, how she goes from that to become a New Testament scholar scholar. And the meat of our conversation really is around what what Christians can gain by understanding Jesus in his Jewish context. And then on the other hand, what the common anti-Jewish, sometimes anti-Semitic tropes are that kind of creep their way into Christian understanding of the scriptures and find their ways into homilies. And so Amy Jill is really on the forefront of educating Christians, seminarians, students in PhD programs, Podcasters. editors at America yep. <laughs> Magazine, about how, how we can avoid um, those pitfalls when it comes to reflecting on Jesus and the scriptures. So if you've ever beat up on the Pharisees before, uh, buckle up. This is a dynamite conversation. You're going to love it. We did a field recording, so we're on location at uh, St. John the Divine Cathedral in New yeah, York City. Yeah, so that's an Anglican cathedral here in New York, so it's ecumenical as well as interfaith <laughs> this episode. So please stick around for our conversation on the Jewishness of Jesus with Amy Jo Levine. Joining us at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine is Dr. Amy Jill Levine. Amy is a Jewish New Testament scholar and author of The Misunderstood Jew, The Church and the Scandal of the Jewish Jesus. Welcome to Jesuitical, AJ. I'm delighted to be with you. We uh, we arrived at the cathedral and the super helpful people at the uh, ticket booth were like, are you are you you all students? And I said, no, we're from a Catholic magazine here to interview a Jewish New Testament scholar at an Anglican cathedral. Um, and they seem to think that was par for the course. It's absolutely normal. It's all good. Yeah. So uh, thanks so much for for joining us. This is we're in, we're in this very comfortable like living room space here. Um, so thank you to St. John the Divine for, for welcoming us. And thanks for joining us. My pleasure. All right, so we want to start with your introduction to Christianity as a child, because you you start your book, The, the Misunderstood Jew, with a very uh, arresting sentence that when you were growing up, you wanted to be the Pope. I did. I did. <laughs> I wanted to be the Pope. My parents explained to me that the Pope lived in Italy, which to me meant pizza and spaghetti. So what's wrong with that? People love the Pope. And Pope gets to wear white, right? So and I look yes. good in white. So and who, that's was, good. who was the Pope when you were growing up? Um, I, I first became interested in this at the funeral of um, now Pope St. John the Twenty-Third. So when John the Twenty-Third died, and I came home from elementary school, and this is the only thing on TV. This is back when TV had three stations. Uh, and as my mother said, you should watch this. This man was very, very important. Um, he is the Pope, and he was good for the Jews, which in our family meant a lot. So I'm watching the Pope, and he rides in the Pope mobile, and you know that looked fun, and he had this great hat. 
So I said to my mother, when I grow up, I want to be Pope because you get to eat spaghetti and it's good for the Jews and it accessorizes well. And my mother says, you can't be Pope. And I said, why not? And she said, because you're not Italian. So, you know, Wasn't the problem that you weren't Catholic, it was no. Italian. And, and, and I think that probably would have been the only explanation that would have made sense to me, right? Um, so now, I mean, rules have changed a little bit. I mean, the, the non-Italians have done pretty well over the past couple of decades. Um, I've met the Pope a couple of times, and I, I don't want to be Pope anymore. The job is much, much too hard. Uh, but if I could be, you know, maybe the speechwriter mm. or the censor, um, so that when the Vatican produces material on Jews and Judaism, just to make sure that I recognize what it is that they are saying. Or when America Magazine produces articles on Jews and Judaism, I don't have to send a note to one of your editors saying, come on, you guys, you know better than that. Um, let's not engage in unintentional anti-Semitism here. Well, we're looking to get some of that, uh, just so we can just listen to this uh, anytime we're about to publish. This will serve as that. I think, yeah, or censor. just send me a note. Shoot send you a AJ, note. You know, would you mind looking at this editorial? You know, we're mentioning Pharisees, we're mentioning Jews, we're mentioning women in the New Testament. Oh, we're just talking about the Bible. Do you want to have a look? All right, it's good to know. Um, now, what was your your background like? Like, how did you go from wanting to be pope, being told no, to finding yourself as a, a Jewish New Testament scholar? <laughs> well, I mean, the Jewish just came came with with the system. Sure. Um, <laughs> I grew up in. I'm from Massachusetts. I now live in Tennessee, but I grew up in Massachusetts in an area that was predominantly Portuguese Roman Catholic. So my introduction to Christianity was was ethnic Catholicism. When I had sleepovers with my friends, I had my own set of rosary beads, right? So I could do that. Um, I, I like sleepovers on Saturday night because mass on Sunday morning was only 50 minutes, but Sunday school in the synagogue was three hours. So I'm thinking, I, I, I like this whole Catholic thing. And your parents were okay with you kind of dabbling in Catholicism? Oh, yeah. My, my parents' sense was, as long as you remember who you are, go, you might learn something that's good to know about other people's religious traditions. And when I would ask about what my friends were doing religiously, my parents explained to me uh, that Christianity, which meant Catholicism, was very similar to Judaism. Right. We worship the same God, the one who created heaven and earth. We pray the same prayers, most notably the Psalms. We take authority from the same set of scriptures. Now, I'd been in my friends' houses, and they had Bibles. And I thought, boy, these Catholics have to work harder than Jews do because you have a bigger Bible than we do. <laughs> you more, you're more Bible to work your way through. And then you learned that Catholics don't actually read the Bible. <laughs> yeah, I did. And meanwhile, I'm trying to learn how to read it in Hebrew. Um, and that a Jewish man named Jesus and a Jewish woman named Mary were very, very important. So I grew up thinking about the Catholic Church as kind of like the synagogue. There's a synagogue we went to, the synagogue we did not go to, but my uncle Arnold went there. And then there was the Catholic Church. It was all part of the same continuum. When I was seven, I was desperate to make my first Holy Communion. I had no idea what it was, but I knew you got a dress. So like, I'm in it for the accessories. And then this little girl says to me on the, said to me on the school bus, you killed our Lord. And I said, I didn't kill anybody, you know, pr particularly God, because you'd know. Um, and she said, yes, you did. Our priest said so. And I knew that priests had to wear these special collars. Rabbis don't, rabbis just wear ties, right? So priests had to wear these special collars. And I thought the reason the priests wore these collars was because were the priest to tell a lie, the collar would choke the priest. I actually floated <laughs> I this. I wish. To the, a couple of years ago, I floated this to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and they, they weren't happy with this. I, there, uh, we wouldn't have any priests left is what they said. <laughs> well, I then suggested something about women's ordination, and they immediately changed the subject. But in any case, um, so I said, is the priest dead, right? Because if the priest were, this would have had to be such a lie that the caller would have choked the priest and the priest would have died. And she said, no. So I, being a rational child, think, okay, the priest said I'm responsible for the death of God. The caller doesn't kill the priest. Therefore, by the transitive property of deicide, I must be responsible for the death of God. And I get off the school bus. I'm crying. Early 1960s. Um, my mother meets me at the school bus, said, what's wrong? I said, it killed God. Um, it took her a while to figure out exactly what happened. When she did, she assured me that God was doing just fine. For my seven-year-old heart, this was extremely good news. Um, and that's when I started to become more formally interested in some of the differences between what I was learning in the synagogue and what I was experiencing when I would go to Mass with my friends. Um, this is all pre-Vatican II. Vatican II had started. But one of the final documents of Vatican II is a text called Nostra Aetate, Latin for In Our Time, so October 1965. Um, and that text says that Jews at all times and all places cannot be held responsible for the death of Jesus. Right? So if I were younger, 
then Vatican II already would have finished and I'd have been a lawyer like my mother wanted. But that didn't happen. And I could not figure out how this tradition that had the same God and the Jewish lady named Mary and the same prayers, not to mention the bunny and Santa, you know, how was this tradition saying horrible things about me? And that's when I wanted, I said to my parents, I want to go to catechism. I want to go to religious education class with my friends. I want to find out where this hateful teaching came from. And my parents very wisely said, go, you might learn something, but remember who you are. So I started to go to catechism. I'm, I'm the only kid who wants to be in religious education class oh, twice yeah. a week after school. The sisters and the lay teachers loved having me there because I actually wanted to be there. And I really liked the stories that they were telling me because the stories in the Gospels are based on the stories in the earlier scriptures. Um, and Jesus struck me as a really interesting Jewish teacher. I never heard anything anti-Semitic or at least anything that registered to me as anti-Semitic. And then when I finally sat down and read the New Testament, and I read it straight through, I mean, it took me a while to plow through, um, two things occurred to me. The first was that we choose how to read. So we can read the New Testament and we can come out as anti-Semites or not. And I wanted to know what that switch was that makes people read more kindly and benevolently that would get us something like Vatican II. Um, and if somebody would teach me what that switch was, I want to teach other people how that works. And the other thing that occurred to me is this is all Jewish history. And it's Jewish history that we did not have in the synagogue. So if I want to know about first century Jewish history, along with Josephus, who's a first century Jewish historian, or Philo, who's a philosopher, the New Testament's one of my best sources. So I thought, well, if somebody can teach me more of this, I want to do more of it. And if that doesn't work, I'll go to law school. Well, I imagine you mentioned in your book, like a lot of this is because Jews and Christians have sort of defined themselves against one another yeah. for so long. And so you're saying even like Jews themselves have like ignored the New Testament as part of their own history since it happened. Um, not only ignored it, but just um, sometimes being kept in ignorance. Um, I had an aunt who, when I started studying New Testament more formally, said to me something along the lines of, why are you reading that hateful, anti-Semitic, disgusting book? And I said, have you ever read it? No, why would I, you know? So, and ignorance never helped anybody. Mm. Um, so part of it is ignorance. Part of it is learned ignorance. Part of it is why would I bother mm. um, any more than uh, people in the Roman Catholic tradition would be interested in reading Martin Luther or people in the Christian tradition might be interested in reading books that did not make the canonical cut, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. Um, so at least in Judaism, we have our own books to get through. And then part of, for my family was, well, why are you reading something that's their book, not our book? And I kept thinking, well, maybe we can share some of this. And as I've studied the New Testament more and more, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that much of the Jesus material can actually serve as a bridge between Jews and Christians rather than the wedge. So we're not going to agree on what happened on Easter Sunday morning, right? And we're not going to agree on the Trinity or the incarnation or a, a resurrection of one person as opposed to the Jewish sense of a general resurrection of the dead at the end of time. But Jesus is someone who teaches in parables. Well, parables are good Jewish stories. We, we can read those together. Um, Jesus, who argues with other Jews about how to follow Torah. Well, Jews have been arguing with fellow Jews since Moses came down the mountain. So having an argument about how best to live out life the way God wants you to live, that's something we can talk about. So I think there's a bunch that can actually be shared. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about your your general approach as a Jewish New Testament scholar and someone who engages in interfaith dialogue, because you do write in your book, you warn against like bland universalism. It sounds like you take your parents' advice very seriously. Like, you can do this, don't forget who you are. And I think a lot of people are afraid to engage in interfaith dialogue because they assume that they're going to have to give something up. Oh, it's that watered down yeah. kumbaya moment. We're all climbing up the same mountain as opposed to all falling down the same rabbit hole. Um, so the basic premise of all this is you don't sacrifice the particulars of your own tradition on the altar of interfaith sensitivity. So you need to know this is not negotiable. And maybe this I can, I, I might be able to, to, to yield a little here. Or maybe, um, and here I'm taking a cue from a, a now deceased um, uh, Lutheran theologian named Christer Stendhal. Um, he talked about something called holy envy, where you see something in a tradition that's not yours, but you think there's truth there, or there's beauty there, or there's inspiration there. So you don't have to colonize the whole thing, but you might be able to appropriate some of it, or learn from it, or recontextualize, recast 
that tradition in your own language. And part of interreligious conversation is that. Um, I also find that the more I study the New Testament, the better Jew I become, because I know about the options that people in the first century had. I get to hear Judaism through other voices in working with Jewish-Christian dialogue. Sometimes uh, a Christian person will say to me, well, what do you think about X, whatever? And so I don't actually think about that. Now let me think about that, right? So what's important to my Christian neighbors might be irrelevant for me and vice versa. But you learn more about yourself by being in dialogue with people who don't always agree with you. You've been a teacher for a very long time. And you've, Gee, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> what I meant to say is you've taught a lot of Christians about their own history, their own faith. Do you encounter like some resistance from them? Like they're afraid that they're going to learn something that is somehow going to take away from uh, this idea of God that they had? Um, not Usually. Um, and plus, I, be, I have been doing this a very long time, so people can read what I've written and say, oh, no. Um, when, when I teach, all of Christian doctrine stays in place. So if you say the creeds, whatever creed you happen to be, all that stays in place. So what I'm trying to do historically is take, in part, a step back behind the gospel writers to try to get a sense of what Jesus would have sounded like. Uh, to the people who first listened to him. So he's a Jew talking to other Jews. And they don't think he's going to die. They certainly don't think, he, his disciples don't think he's going to die, right? No, get, you know, you're not going to die. And, well, yeah. Um, and they don't know that there's going to be a religion developed in his name. So how do you get back some of that, that punch or that provocation? So why are people paying attention to him in the first place? Um, what were the gospels conveying to the people to whom the gospel writers were addressing toward the end of the first century who were primarily Gentiles, primarily in a Greek-speaking area. How does Paul, who's clearly Jewish, but he's the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the non-Jews, how does that stuff sound? So I'm not taking away Christian theology. What I'm doing is I'm adding to it. Um, and the cool thing here is I can say to people who claim to be Christian and claim to love Jesus and all that other stuff, I say, you really love him? Let me tell you about when he lived. And let me tell you about what he would have sounded like. And I think he sounds really, really interesting. And I will tell you stuff that you haven't thought about, because I'll tell you what he sounded like from a first century Jewish perspective. Not because I'm a first century Jew. I'm not that old, but because, <laughs> but, but because I'm an, an historian. Um, and then what I find in my classes is people, well, boy, he really was that interesting. Um, and it's about ethics, and it's about challenge, and it's about politics and economics. And how do you live as if you're, you've already got one foot in the kingdom of heaven? And then the text takes on more meaning as opposed to sounding kind of fairy tale like or as opposed to literalist readings, which tend not to be terribly helpful. And it enriches their theology rather than takes away. They do get embarrassed on occasion, like the Jew knows more about the Gospels than they do. I say, oh, yeah, fine, buck up. You can learn it too. Uh, yeah, I want to get into more of the like the benefits to Christians of, of knowing about Jesus's Jewishness. But I'm wondering like what the alternative is, because now it seems like pretty like undeniable that Jesus was a Jew, but you had to write this book and other people have had to remind Christians of Jesus's Jewishness. So what, what were they imagining before if they weren't taking that into yeah. account? <laughs> right. People say, at least on his mother's like, well, side, right? Yeah. Um, so it, part of the problem is that although it's pretty well known that Jesus was a Jew, um, we keep getting publications about Jesus was a Jew, but a marginal Jew, an exceptional Jew, a peculiar Jew, uh, a Jew who's distinct from all other Jews. Um, so what does it mean? It's like saying some, somebody is an American. Well, what exactly does that tell you? Somebody is Mexican, somebody is Kenyan. So we have the label, but we have very little content to it. You know, so he's a Jew. Well, I mean, there are lots of people who were Jewish, um, but does that mean he's like Jerry Seinfeld or you know, um, Sarah Silverman? Or does it mean he's like, God forbid, Benjamin Netanyahu? Um, so even when we talk about Jews, well, what what is a Jew like in the first century? And what I so often find is because people say he's Jewish, but they don't understand what it means. All sorts of negative stereotypes come in about Judaism, like Judaism is hopelessly patriarchal and Jesus invents feminism in the pantsuit. Um, and Jesus, Jews thought that the only people who would go to heaven are the healthy and the wealthy, and Jesus invents you know, loving concern for the poor and the disabled. So I find myself um, writing to people, including uh, editors of your magazine, saying, gee, you've just published another article that misperceives, mischaracterizes, misunderstands Judaism, um, rather than fully locating Jesus within his own Jewish context. 
So even though he's acknowledged to be Jewish, I don't want he, to, him to be, he's a Jew, but I would like it to be, he's a Jew and therefore. You you touched on a couple of the sort of common tropes or misconceptions that people have. I want to sort of get into just a few of those if we could. Um, so one that you write about is the idea of like Old Testament, angry, bad God, Jesus um, sort of relieves people of the burdens that that come with all of that baggage. Oh, yeah. So um, Old Testament, God of wrath, New Testament, God of love, Old Testament law, New Testament grace, Old Testament violence, New Testament mercy, and all that other stuff. That's a heresy. Um, it's called Marcionism. The only scriptures that Jesus has are the scriptures of Israel, what the church will eventually call the Old Testament. Jesus does not in invent a new and improved God. Um, when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment being love of God and love of neighbor, that's right out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. Um, when Jesus debates other Jews on how to follow the law, he actually makes the law more strict rather than less strict. He's not Judaism light. Um, the law says don't commit murder. He does what rabbinic Judaism, post-biblical Judaism calls building a fence about the law. He makes another law to make sure you don't violate the first one. So you have heard it said don't commit murder and it's not, but it's and. And I say to you, don't be angry which is a whole lot harder. Yeah. So the idea is if you're not angry, you're less likely to commit murder. The law says don't commit adultery. He says, I say to you, don't even think about it because if you don't think about it, then you don't plan it. And if you don't plan it, you're less likely to do it. So he, he ratchets it up and says, let's try to get to the heart of what this text is trying to do. Um, he insists in the Sermon on the Mount that your righteousness has to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's not saying you have to be better than a Nazi child molester. I mean, he's actually setting the bar very, very high. Um, and I appreciate that because he, like fellow Jews, is debating how best you live the way God wants you to live. I want to talk about the Pharisees because that is often, they're all often used as like the foil to Jesus in, in the scriptures and in, in, in homilies that I've, I've heard. So what is, what's the wrong way and what's a better way to talk about the Pharisees? So in 2019, there was a major conference held in Rome uh, on the Pharisees. We actually got a papal audience, which was great. Um, and the proceeds of this conference have now been published. It came out in a book titled The Pharisees, you know, pretty red cover, um, edited by Joseph Sievers, who's a priest who teaches at the Biblicum, the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. Um, and when this conference took place, I happened to be teaching at the Biblicum. So I, I, I hold the distinction of being the first Jew to teach New Testament at the Pontifical Biblical Institute, which is really pretty Not cool. bad. That's Not pretty bad. Cool. It's a great gig. <laughs> so what do we know about the Pharisees? They are very close to Jesus in a number of things. They're a lay-led organization. So priesthood in Judaism is, is inherited. In Judaism, if your father's a priest, you're a priest. In Roman Catholicism, that doesn't happen, or at least it's not surprising. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Um, uh, and what the Pharisees are doing is uh, interested in doing is this egalitarian move of extending priestly privileges to all the people. You know, why should just the priests get to do things? This is why they have this whole thing about hand washing. Who knew after COVID, it turns out the Jews were right. <laughs> washing hands. Um, why? Because the priests washed their hands in the Jerusalem temple before handling the sacrificial elements. Kind of like when you go into a church, priest washes his hands, right? That's not for hygiene, because if that were hygiene, they'd be using Purell. It's issue, it's ritual purity. And the Pharisees say, well, everybody can wash their hands. So why don't we pretend that we're all priests serving at the altar and then you just wash your hands beforehand? Jesus, more conservative, says, no, no, let's just leave that to the priest. Um, so the Pharisees, they're a lay-led organization. They actually make things easier, right? Um, because you can read the law and be super rigorous. And you can read the law and be kind of, yeah, well, do this the best you can. And if you screw up, we, we've got options for you. The Dead Sea Scrolls refer to the Pharisees as seekers after smooth things. They just make things too easy. And Jesus is making them a little bit harder. So because they're competing for the attention of the Jewish population, and then following the death of Jesus, and then after the year 70, following the destruction of the temple, the Pharisees are, they're the group that's left more or less to pick up to pieces. So when Matthew was writing, and Matthew really doesn't like the Pharisees very much, you can sense that conflict with, well, you could follow Jesus, but you might want to go the Pharisee route too. Um, and then it, the closer you are, the more likely you are to fight, right? So you can see that let's, we're fighting for the attention of the population. Which direction are they going to go? So my sense is Pharisees are your friends. Paul, Paul always says he's not going to boast and then proceeds to boast. Okay. 
Um, and when he trots out his credentials in Philippians, he says, as to the law of Pharisee, under the law blameless. And then he says, I count it all as nothing for the sake of Christ. Well, you don't say I count this as nothing if it counted for nothing to begin with, right? So like, so it's like, you know, this dust might, well, I'll give that up for Christ. No. So he's saying this is the, the most important thing that defined him. So if that's so important, even for Paul, we might want to look at that as important. And then look at Pharisees, individual Pharisees, like Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, or uh, the Pharisee Gamaliel, who shows up in Acts chapter 5. And these seem like perfectly decent people. So try to look at the Pharisees with a little bit more humility, a little bit more awareness of how negative comments about Pharisees become negative comments about Jews. So when I read in uh, newspapers, it's being Pharisaic, and that really has a negative tinge to it. And I I want that to be a compliment, just as if you say something is Jesuitical. Yeah. <laughs> to make that as a compliment rather than as rather than so as we're an trying insult. to do. Now, is, yeah. is, is the problem just like painting with a broad brush? Like, are you, is it okay to say, or like, is it correct to say that Jesus is arguing with like a individual who is a Pharisee and like to like sort of see yourself like represented in in that in some way like I am the Pharisee in this in this parable or this like because as I read it I even with this in mind I like can't help but come away with like well it does seem like Jesus is arguing with that person absolutely and as a Christian I'm supposed to side with Jesus even if I see myself in that other person is that like it's, do I have this wrong? Or? No, you don't. And it's a okay. very, very good question that you've asked because it's hard to escape the, the 2,000 years of history yeah. in between the time that the Gospels were written and now when we're talking here in 2024. So one way of figuring this is you can identify with the Pharisees, and a number of people do. So if Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, a good way of approaching this is he's arguing with me, the reader, whoever I am. Right? Where you get into trouble is, while well, the Pharisees therefore represent the negative. And the Christian knows at the end of the day that the Pharisees did not follow Jesus. I mean, except for those who did, like Paul. Um, it, the, the Jews, for the most part, the Pharisees, for the most part, did not follow Jesus. So they kind of missed the boat from a Christian perspective. And then the Pharisees wind up being the, I, I was that, but now I'm better. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it winds up leaving this kind of anti-Semitic overlay. And you can see that by just substituting the name of any other minoritized group and say, oh, don't be like the Pharisees, be like the whatever. And that model winds up reinforcing prejudice rather than doing away with it. Um, all religions are supersessionist. All religions think that if, if you're a member of a particular religious tradition, you generally think that you've got it right and your neighbors don't because otherwise you'd convert. Right? Um, how can we be more generous to people who did not follow along the track that we followed? And they're finding out what we share is very, very helpful. And when it comes to negative comments about the Pharisees, I would like there to be little warning labels. Like if you walk into a church on a Sunday morning and somebody hands you a bulletin that might tell you, you know, who's in the hospital or who gave the flowers or whatever, have a little note saying problematic comments about the Pharisees here, but we recognize that the Pharisees are And then you could go to various Vatican documents and say so. Um, The cool thing about the Pharisees book is at the end, the Pope had to give us a speech because we got a papal audience. Um, So we got to print the Pope's speech um, at the back of the book. It's also on the Vatican website, which you can access for free. And the Pope talks about 2,000 years of tragedy where the Pharisees have been used in Christian preaching and teaching to malign Jews. Stop doing that. It's not necessary. Find your purpose at the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University. As a student, you'll have the opportunity to faithfully and critically engage the 2,000-year tradition of Christianity through approaches grounded in the 21st century and the Church's global context. Rooted in an Ignatian heritage, scholars and ministers are equipped to live out their theology for the benefit of the communities they serve. Generous scholarship opportunities are available and priority applications are being accepted now. To learn more, visit scu.edu forward slash JST forward slash hello.
I want to get to another trope and one that kind of surprised me. Um, you talk about this idea of like a social justice Jesus or the Jesus as portrayed in liberation theology. And I think a lot of people see that as that must be the most benign kind of Christianity. These are the ones that care about the poor and the marginalized. And, and even using that language I found from reading your book can can be problematic from some perspectives. Oh, so. anytime you have benign Christology, it's already gone off the road. <laughs> I mean, Christology should not be benign. Jesus was not a, you know, a smiley, twinkly yeah. kind of benign person, you know, who, who like just carry sheep. Yeah. So, I mean, so I yeah, really walk, pretty walk, edgy. Us, walk us through some problematic aspects of liberation theology. Yeah. Well, that. I mean, it's not liberation theology per se. Liberation mm -hmm. theology is using the text to diagnose contemporary social problems. I think that's a really good idea because the Bible's not just an historical document. It is that. But if the Bible is to have meaning to current communities that hold it sacred, it needs to speak to people in their own social context. I think that's fine. Um, and I do think Jesus is pretty edgy um, when it comes to questions of economics and politics. I mean, sell all you have and give to the poor. That's pretty edgy. Or saying your kingdom come, which basically means the one that we've got is not the one that we want. And that's necessarily a political statement. So the problem comes about um, if Jesus becomes the person who speaks to the marginalized, the outcast, the ostracized, then I want some content to that label, right? So when I ask my students or when I hear sermons about Jesus speaking to the marginalized, well, who are the marginalized? Well, the sick and the disabled. No, most of them are embedded in kinship or community systems. What Jesus does is not change the system. He restores people to health and, in fact, restores people to ritual purity rather than doing away with purity laws. Or they tell me children are marginalized, children are nobody, they have no social honor, and Jesus likes kids. Well, of course he likes kids, but so do fellow Jews, which is why Jews keep bringing their kids to Jesus for him to heal or to touch or to bless. Uh, women are marginalized and ostracized, and then Jesus invents feminism in the pantsuit. Um well, Jesus, I wish you were a feminist because that would make things great. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of Catholics would be surprised well, yeah, to hear him describe right. And I go to an Orthodox synagogue where it's not like we're, we're entirely egalitarian either. Um, but if Jesus were a feminist, six of the 12 disciples would have been women. Um, and there would have been a woman at the Transfiguration. And there would have been a woman at the Last Supper. I mean, there may have been women at the Last Supper. Absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. But, you know, he could have done more. So what we wind up with is these stereotypes of first century Judaism being highly misogynist and an uber patriarchal so that anytime Jesus talks with a woman, suddenly he invents feminism. And that's just a mischaracterization of early Judaism. What we can do from the New Testament, which is a brilliant source of Jewish history, women own their own homes. Women have access to their own funds. Women have freedom of travel. Women show up in synagogues. Women show up in the Jerusalem temple. Women can call out in public. Women can argue with Jesus. Um, so rather than look at first century Judaism as, as, you know, as, as if they make the Taliban look progressive, um, is to use Jesus' relationship to women to say, let's look at the history of the time and see how much authority, how much, uh, movement in terms of society women actually had. In other words, you don't have to make Judaism look bad in order to make oh, yeah, Jesus look what good. That's what my question was going to be. Yeah. Like, can you say good things about Jesus without it necessarily implying a bad oh, thing yeah. about Judaism? Yeah, but, but you don't have to knock him out of his own social context in order to do that. Um, so what I'm able to do in the classroom is say, I as a Jew think Jesus looks fabulous. I don't worship him as Lord and Savior because I've never felt that. Right. So I'm, my heart is completely filled with my own Judaism. So I'm not, I don't feel like I'm missing something. And it's not like I've had a revelation on like, you know, uh, Highway 440 in Nashville. Um, <laughs> but I see some wonderful things there that anybody can appreciate without yanking him out of, out of his own context or without having to paint the context in negative views in order to make Jesus look good. How do you, I, I guess, situate Jesus holding his culture and also possibly that he was countercultural at at the time is that is that just not true at all or cuz i get and i'm in, you know i'm bringing a lot of like pr like presumptions and things i've been taught and the way i read things but the way i encounter jesus is that this is at least to some level someone who is countercultural like who's getting into trouble frequently yeah um today calling someone countercultural has a certain cachet to it 
which is why we like words like revolutionary, radical, transgressive, rebel. Yeah, yeah. To like with a with a cause. Yes. Right? Um, and, and but and and these terms are all very rhetorically powerful. They're also substantially historically inaccurate because the places where Jesus really is anomalous um, are places where the church typically doesn't want to go. Sell all you have and give to the poor. That's you know, I, I'm trusting that no one in this room has actually done that. Right. I have an appointment um, next Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like Saint Augustine saying, "Give me continence, but not yet." Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> it's a good idea. When I'm eighty, I'll try. Um, um, I, there are certain places where he is distinct in his culture. He's not completely anomalous. Um, I think he's a celibate. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls speak to celibacy. Philo, our Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, knows about celibate Jews. So celibacy had its thing in first century Judaism. Um, but the dominant view was get married, make babies. And I think Jesus was not interested in that. And that's particularly helpful for people who do not have their own families or women who, for whatever reason, can have children or don't have children or maybe widowed or deserted or divorced. So he's got this sense of alternative family values. But we're so much into the, the you know, mummy, daddy, and me model that that part of Jesus kind of disappears unless you join a religious order. I think he's distinct in that he expects the kingdom of God to be breaking in during his lifetime and that he has something to do with that. So if you thought the world was going to end on Tuesday, with or without your appointment, you might act differently than if you knew you were going to be here for another 50 years or even 10 years. Um, because if the world is going to end on Tuesday, what seems really important right now is no longer important at all. All right. You don't have to get your taxes in. You don't have to finish your dissertation. Um, but you might want to go apologize to the person that you've upset and go fix things before it's too late. And that's anomalous because most people don't do this because most people think it's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And Jesus says, no, it's like while the sun is shining, you take care of it now. That's pretty radical. So we leave out the really radical stuff. And then we wind up with this, oh, he's he, unlike Jews, he liked women. And unlike Jews, he cared about sick people. And I just find that it's cheap, it's lazy, and it's historically inaccurate. You mentioned that all religions are supersessionist, but in my education, that, that's been a bad word. Like, we're not supposed to be uh, supersessionist. So can you, can you define what that means and what people should be looking out for when they, when they read the Old Testament as Catholics to, to avoid some of the darker aspects of that. Well, I mean, as long as as long as Christians remember that the Old Testament was a good Christian term, right? Because Jews don't talk about the Old Testament. We've only got one. Um, uh, is that's the Bible of Jesus? That's the Bible of Paul. That's the Bible of the early church. And it's a Bible that's, that requires interpretation because all texts require interpretation. So what the church does is it then reads that text through the lens of the New Testament, and that's all well and good. Jews are going to read the same text through the rabbinic lens. And sometimes we agree on certain things, and sometimes we don't agree on certain things. That's all well and good. Supersessionism means my group is better than the group that we came out of. So if you come out of the Anglican Church, right, then uh, you're a Methodist. So John Wesley comes out of the Anglican Church, then you get Methodism. Then you have Methodism in its various forms. You have Eastern Orthodoxy splitting off from that original church where the Roman West and, and the Greek East were more or less united, and then each group thinks that they've got it right. And so we're always going to do that. Supersessionism comes in various flavors. One toxic flavor, very distasteful flavor, is called replacement theology. And replacement theology is all the promises that God gave to the Jews now bypass the Jews and they, they go over to the Christian church. That, I think, is pretty nasty. Um, and I think it's not biblically consistent either. Right? Paul says that the gifts that God gave the people of Israel are irrevocable because God doesn't repent of the gifts that God has given. So I'm, I'm going to read with Paul here. Um, so there's a theologian from Canada named David Novak who coined the term soft supersessionism and hard supersessionism. Hard supersessionism means the promises that you had now belong to me and you've got bupkis, you've got nothing. Soft supersessionism is you're okay. And you got some good stuff there, but we're the next iteration and we've got it better. And I'm all right with that. So if the Christian wants to say that you can only get saved through the Christ, which is what the New Testament teaches, I'm okay with that. Um, and if the Jew says, yeah, I don't think so, then we will agree to disagree. And since we're not dead yet, I'm, I'm less worried about that. 
because that's, you know, when we die or when we blow ourselves to smithereens, then we can worry about it. I'm much more interested not in, you know, how do you get judged, saved, or damned, but how do we live together so we don't blow each other up? And where can we agree and where can we work together? Where the Old Testament, to use the Christian term, is very, very helpful. You will always have the poor and needy in your land, so extend your hand to the poor and needy, that sort of thing. I was thinking about this, um, preparing for this interview, the way that Christians will read Jesus back into the Old Testament all over the place. Um, and I feel can't help but feel like we're like set up to do that. Like the lectionary itself, the way it's structured is like there's some kind of thematic. They try to like link the New Testament and the Old Testament like thematically. Mm-hmm. And so we're like led down this path to like to also see Jesus back yeah. into the Old Testament. And, and that itself is is not problematic necessarily. Like from what I'm hearing what you're saying, it's like your analogy of the New Testament being like analogous to almost like a, a commentary um, or a rabbinic text is it, that kind of a light bulb went off here for that. Light bulbs are good. So uh, my colleague, Mark Brettler, who teaches at Duke and I, um, we both edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament. And we also, when we got done with this, um, realized we had a bunch more stuff to do. He's also Jewish. Um, he teaches primarily Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, Hebrew Bible. And Christians kept writing to us saying, you know, if you just read Isaiah 53, or if you just read Psalm 22, you would see that every page in the Old Testament gets you to Jesus. So that's that retrospective reading that you're talking about. And that's exactly right. So I think if you read the text through Christian lenses, you're going to see Jesus on every page. If you take the Christian lenses off and you put Jewish lenses on, you're going to see a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with Jesus. So Mark and I wrote a book called uh, The Bible With and Without Jesus. And we fought for that and because the press wanted it to be or, with or without. No, it's with and without. So if you read the scriptures of Israel through Christian lenses, he's there at the beginning of Genesis because John tells you in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, But if you take the Christian lenses off, then you've got a mighty wind hovering over the face of the deep. When you read through other people's lenses, it's very disorienting. Like if I put on my partner's lenses, I can't see anything because that's not my prescription. Um, But it helps to be able to train yourself to read through other people's lenses and the text opens up to multiple meanings. And I have no problem with that. I think when it comes to Christians reading the Old Testament, I think Christians would do very well to look at rabbinic commentary because the rabbis had some wise things to say. Uh, A number of years ago, the Pontifical Biblical Commission, which is the Vatican think tank for Bible, on which I'm angling for a seat, by the way, so if you know anybody, put out a document on on the Jewish people and their Bible and the scriptures of the church. Um, it's, It's like 100 pages long and it's written in Vaticanese. But one of the things that it advises is it would be good for Christians to familiarize themselves with post-biblical Jewish commentary. And I think that's a good thing. In the same way, I want Jews to become more familiar with how Christians read the, the text that we share. Um, I think if, if we Jews want Christians to know more about Judaism than a production of Fiddler on the Roof, current news from the Middle East, um, and, and maybe uh, Hanukkah displays next to the Christmas tree in the mall, um, but we want Christians to know about our traditions and our ethics and our values. Um, I think we Jews should show Christians the same courtesy, which means understanding how you read your texts, um, how the various Christian communions understand things differently, the progress that's been made, especially by the Roman Catholic Church in terms of Jewish-Catholic relations, so that we know each other more. Because if you, if you need to love the stranger who dwells among you, and if you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you might want to know a little bit more about that neighbor. Staying in the present time, one thing that a lot of people are debating right now um, is is how to define anti-Semitism. So I'm wondering how you would distinguish anti-Judaism versus anti-Semitism, and then maybe we can get into how that relates to anti-Zionism. But uh, Oh, what but, a hot mess that is. Um, and biblical scholars and theologians and historians have been debating, you know, at what point does anti-Judaism, which is a religious concern, become anti-Semitism, which is an ethnic concern or a racial concern? And I find so often in New Testament studies that the terms are defined so narrowly that it winds up exculpating, uh, making not guilty the New Testament. No, it's not anti-Semitic, right? Might have some anti-Jewish things in here, but it's really, you know, um, if it inculcates Jew hatred, that's the problem. So I'm much less interested in the particulars of, you know, are we talking about ethnicity? Are we talking about race? Um, can we determine at what point a text moves from being against Jews as a religious community to Jews as, a, as an ethnic group? And one of the things that makes this really hard is that Jews never settle down just to be a religion. 
Um, we are a people, and a people has certain things that a religion doesn't have. So a people has a geographical center, like Germans or British or Italians or Kenyans. Um, it has a common ancestry, so from Abraham and Sarah. Um, it has a national language, which would be Hebrew. Um, it has a sense of continuity over time, even when you live in the diaspora. So you still recognize that connection to the homeland and whatnot. So since we're already a people, even if something is anti-Jewish, it's already bleeding over into something that's not. And by the time we get to the New Testament, there's, there's already a sense of linguistic separation. So when we get particularly to the Gospel of John, where John, there are no Sadducees in John. And when you get a story that starts with Pharisees, you know, by verse five or six, suddenly those Pharisees have become the Jews. And it's, you know, here's Jesus and his buddies. And over here on the other side, on the negative side, that's where the Jews are. Can I interject quickly a question sure. there? Would, would have people hearing that gospel have understood that Jesus and his buddies were also Jewish? Or One would hope so. But if you're just reading the text as a literary text, you get a sense of the divorce. And that's that Jesus is a Jew, but... Um, so John's basically giving readers the, the sense of if you, if you find somebody who's identified as a Jew, stay away. Danger, danger, danger. Um, stay away from synagogues. They're going to throw you out, although we have no evidence of Jews doing that in the first century. Um, so it's already beginning to separate Jesus out. And even if they recognize Jesus as a Jew, you know, isn't this guy the son of Joseph from, you know, from Nazareth, right? Well, Jesus is really the only begotten Son of God who comes from above, so even John is kind of stripping away some of that ethnicity. If the thing inculcates distrust of Jews or hatred of Jews, then it's a problem, and I'm much less concerned about when do we start talking about anti-Semitism. I mean, the, the term anti-Semitism wasn't coined until the 19th century, and, and it's a racial concern. Uh, but if you go back as far as, say, the Spanish Inquisition, where they're looking at people who are, they have uh, the new Christians, which is what they were called, these Jews, basically Ferdinand and Isabella, who are not only floating Columbus, but, you know, they're doing a lot of other things, um, said, you can convert to Catholicism or you leave. So the Jews get booted out of Spain and so do the Muslims. But a bunch of people wanted to stay, so they convert to Catholicism. They're called new Christians, but there's always this check on them. You know, I wonder if they're taking a bath on Friday to prepare for the Sabbath. I wonder if they're actually eating pork. Are they lighting candles on Friday night? All sorts of different things. Um, it, there were certain religious orders, uh, Catholic religious orders, that would not let Jews join, even if the family converted 400 years before. Um, this is now stopped. So that's, that's a racial thing. That's not a religious thing. That's a racial thing. So even before the term anti-Semitism is coined, there's already a sense that even if you baptize us, we still have this this Jew thing connected to us. So I think to kind of wrap this up in a constructive way, um, you use this phrase to describe the relationships between Catholics and Jews and, and dialogue as siblings fighting over their parents' legacy. As because sometimes people think like, oh, they're like the we descend from Judaism, like a like a parent-child relationship. But you think it's more helpful to think of us as yeah. Well, father-son metaphor was already taken. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> if we think about the stew, um, which is Second Temple Judaism, where you have Pharisees and Essenes and Zealots and the followers of John the Baptist and Jews living in the diaspora and some Jews are in the Roman army and some Jews have nothing to do with this and you have ultra-conservative and ultra-liberal and so on. Because again, we're an ethnic group. Like Americans, we can, we can differ on everything. We just know we're Americans and we're not what Canadians, right? Jews always had this, this type of diversity. Um, and out of the stew of Second Temple Judaism comes basically rabbinic Judaism um, and Christianity. And in that separation, we're all trying to figure out, well, how do you interpret the scriptures of Israel? What does Genesis mean? How do you interpret the Mosaic Code, right? How do you interpret the Ten Words, the Decalogue, what the church would call the Ten Commandments? How do you understand how best to, to play out what God wants? What's your relationship to the land of Israel? Uh, what's your sense of uh, salvation? What's your sense of how do you sanctify daily life? So mother-daughter doesn't quite work here because we're coming out of the same tradition. Paul never gives up on his own. Paul's Jewish, and, he, and he's proud of it, and he thinks this is great. He also thinks Jesus is coming back very soon. Now, if that had happened, we would not be here, and we would not be having this conversation. Uh, but as time goes on, and the second coming doesn't happen, then they have to figure out, well, what do we do with this tradition? 
Um, and if the Gentiles turn to the God of Israel, which is this messianic sign, that's a sign in Judaism, one of the signs of the messianic age is the Gentiles stop worshiping their own gods and they worship the God of Israel. Well, what do we do with all these Gentiles who are now in the majority in the church and how was it that you had Paul who's following Jewish law and James who's following Jewish law and Peter's who's following Jewish law? Suddenly they're in the minority and now following Jewish law becomes a heresy in the church? That's the Inquisition. Who inherits? So it is, it's like siblings fighting over who gets mommy's tablecloth and who gets daddy's pocket watch and who is the appropriate guardian of the tradition and then trying to learn and looking at this from some sort of more, I don't know, divine perspective, how can we both be playing out what God wants? And how do we learn from each other? And how do we celebrate that type of diversity um, while we wait for the Messianic age to come? Or as my friends would put it, you can wait for the Messiah or you can wait for the Messiah to come back. What do you do in the interval? And that's where academics can help and where ethics can help and where social justice can help want to thank you, AJ, for all you've done to to help siblings understand their role in doing that. We do have one final question for you before we let you go. We ask all our guests this. If you could canonize one person, uh, living or dead, Catholic or not, Jewish or not, uh, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Um, well, Jews don't actually canonize people, so it, it's a little bit counterintuitive for me. But if I wanted somebody's memory to be recalled on an annual basis because this person did good in the world, and for me personally, because you're asking for me personally, mm -hmm. like yep. who would my We're letting you be, be the Pope right now. <laughs> oh, I mean, the shoes alone make it worth it. Um, um, my mother, because it's her memory that I recollect. Uh, my father died when I was quite young. Uh, my mother graduated from college in 1933 and, and wanted to go on and do advanced level work in the height of the Depression. And her parents said, "We have to, you have two brothers, we have to get them through medical school, you have to come home and work. So when my, and my parents were married 18 years before I was born, so I was like this quite happy accident. Um, my mother thought anything this little girl wanted that would be academic she was going to open those doors because she knew what it was like to have doors closed in front of her. And although she didn't understand my fascination with the Catholic Church or my fascination with Jesus or with the New Testament, she said, this makes sense. This seems like a good thing to do. I will help you do that. So I want my mother to be like the, the patron saint of mothers who's there not to create a child in her own image. She was a mathematician. Uh, but to encourage the child for that child's own talents if I said I wanted a pony, that was not going to happen. But if I wanted a book on the Gospels, she would buy that from me or get it from me from the library. What's her name? Uh, her name was Anna Helen, and she went by Anne. All right. Well, if we can continue her legacy and open any doors at the Vatican for you, we'll, we'll keep... Oh, please we'll, do. We'll, we'll help angling. Please do. We'll Thank you very angling. much. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes and Delaney Coyne, with production assistance from Michael O'Brien and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.